Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, those are the words that Jesus chooses to start what is without question the most powerful and most significant public address ever given in human history, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And these are words that have for 2,000 years struck a chord with Christian and non-Christian alike. They've had an impact far beyond what most of us really realize in our day-to-day lives. And before we even talk about those eight lines that I just recited to you, I want to talk a little bit about the sermon in general, because it is powerful and magnificent, but it is also incredibly difficult in a variety of ways. This is what C.S. Lewis said about the Sermon on the Mount. This is in one of his letters. He says, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? How's that for an image? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. That's C.S. Lewis, as he always is. Cutting, brilliant, and what he's saying is something that most Christians, I think, who've read the Sermon on the Mount and actually like paid attention have felt which is this this sermon hits you like a sledgehammer to the face. There are so many things that Jesus says in it that are these commands given to his followers that feel not only impractical, like this isn't going to work, Jesus. If I do this, it's not really going to help my life. It's probably going to make my life worse. All the way to the things that feel like downright impossible. I can't possibly do this thing you're asking. And so over the years, there have been countless different kind of like interpretive strategies that people apply to the Sermon on the Mount um, and kind of different ways to deal with it and trying to figure out what exactly is Jesus trying to get from us here. And I'm just going to share a few because there are tons and we could talk about it all morning. But here's a few that have been really popular over the last couple hundred years in our parts of the world. So one really, really common way of kind of interpreting the Sermon on the Mount has been to say that Jesus in this sermon, he's not addressing every single Christian. He's addressing like an elite class of Christians, and different traditions have defined that differently. Some have made it really narrow and said, he's just actually talking about his apostles. So these are words that are just for the 12 disciples to hear, and and that's how they're supposed to live. Some traditions have said, it's just the priests of Christianity, like the priestly class of whatever tradition that is. These are the ones who are expected to obey this. Others, and this is a really kind of, for some of us, this will be a really strange sounding interpretation, but believe it or not, um, this one was actually probably the most prominent way of interpreting this in the United States over the last hundred years. It's not as popular currently. But this view held that what Jesus is describing is the way of life and the expectations of ethnic Jews living during the millennial reign of Jesus on earth. Now, some of you guys are like, I don't know what any of those words mean. And that's fine. All you need to know is it's another way of saying this is for a select group of people at a select time. It's not broadly for Christians everywhere. It's just for this one category later. Now, probably the most popular kind of like interpretive view now is to say something along the lines of Jesus isn't saying things that he expects Christians to actually be able to do. What Jesus is doing is 
setting an impossibly high standard so that Christians, when they read it, will realize how much they need grace. See how that works? So this isn't like what we're supposed to do. This is just, this is impossible, and you're supposed to know it's impossible, so you say, thank goodness we have Jesus to save us. Now, here's the thing. Um, I say this all the time, but I mean it. There are much smarter people than me who believe all of those views and many others, so I'm not trying to disparage them. But for South Valley, as we approach this text, one thing we recognize is that all of these views and so many other ones, in a sense, in different ways, are trying to wiggle out of the difficulty of the Sermon on the Mount. There are different means of kind of going like, oh, there's got to be a reason why I don't have to take this seriously. And so for us, as we approach the Sermon on the Mount in the coming weeks, because we're going to be here for a little while, we want to approach it with this question in mind. What if Jesus simply means exactly what he's saying. That sounds simple, but it's not, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But that's the question we want to ask. What if Jesus means what he's saying, and he expects that Christians, his followers, are going to take this seriously and strive to the best of their ability to actually live this out? So with that in mind, let's jump in. This is how the kind of intro goes, and it's really significant. It says, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And what follows is the entire sermon, starting with those eight lines that I said at the beginning of the message. Those are called the Beatitudes. It's just a Latin word for blessing. That's why we call them that. But this start is incredibly significant. Now, we did, talked about this with the temptation two weeks ago, but it's worth seeing it again here because it has huge bearing on the sermon. Jesus has, in Matthew already, he's come out of Egypt. He's passed through the waters, in his case of baptism. He spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted and, and going hungry. And now he's gone up onto a mountain to give God's law to his people. Who does this remind you of? Moses. If you're a member of the Jewish people, like his entire audience was, and like most of Matthew's original audience was, when you read this, you are supposed to think this is the new Moses. The new Moses is up on the mountain, and he is going to give God's law. It's like time to sit up and pay attention. Because that law that Moses receives at Sinai, if you're a Jewish person, this is absolutely central to your identity. Moses gives out these 613 commandments from God that are about how Israel is supposed to live as God's representative among the rest of the nations. What's really interesting about the way that that law, Moses' law, we call it the Mosaic Covenant, the way that that is kind of formulated is that it's based around blessings and curses in the land of Israel. So the idea is, here is the way that God has expected the people who he's rescued from Egypt, he's saved them, and now this is how he wants them to live in order to reflect his goodness before the other nations. And the idea here with the blessings and curses in the Old Testament law is, if you do these things, then it will go well for you in the land of Israel. You're going to get plenty of rain. Your crops are going to flourish. All of, the, all of your livestock are going to multiply and have tons of babies, and you're going, to do, you're going to do really well. You're going to have plenty of food, plenty of crops. But if you fail to keep your end of the covenant, curses are going to come, and it's the exact opposite of all those blessings. The sky's going to be shut up. No rain is going to fall. Your animals aren't going to do well. Your crops aren't going to do well. You're going to suffer in the land. So with that in mind, as Jesus is being kind of pictured here as the new Moses on the mountain, he's given out God's law to God's people. Listen to how he starts. We're going to read it one more time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now with this whole idea of blessing and curses in the land of Israel, what stands out to you immediately when you hear the Beatitudes? What's missing? Curses. I mean, that's staggering. Jesus starts this law that he's giving out by saying, bless, bless, blessed, 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 over and over again. And not only that, it's no longer contained to the land of Israel. Now the only kind of confines we're given are the kingdom of heaven, which is Matthew's particular way of saying the kingdom of God. As a side note, the reason Matthew does that is because his gospel, compared to the other three, is written primarily to a Jewish audience, and the use of the word God was something that, was, that, that could cause problems. It could, cause, it could be seen as disrespectful, potentially. So Matthew has chosen the term kingdom of heaven as a way to be more approachable to his particular audience. But the point there is the, the bounds of blessing are now the kingdom of heaven, and you see no curses, just blessing after blessing after blessing. And so this whole section is framed around these statements of blessing given to people. And so before we move forward, we've got to understand what does a blessing even mean? Because the way we use the term bless in our culture is just bizarre, right? I actually had to answer the question of why we say what a blessing actually is the other day because my daughter sneezed and I said, God bless you, instinctively. And she said, like, why? What does that mean? Which is like a very toddler thing to experience. I was like, this is a why question I'm willing to answer today. Um, I did not tell her that the reason I said God bless you is because during the bubonic plague, Pope Gregory said that if somebody sneezes, you should offer a prayer for them because there's a chance they have the plague and are dying, um, which is probably true. That's not 100% true. It's probably true. I didn't tell her that. I told her what blessing actually means. And here's the thing about blessing. In our world, the times when we see bless, other than when we sneeze, is like... Um, I'm not even exaggerating, even though it sounds ridiculous. It'll be like a picture on Instagram of somebody who like just got their Starbucks and they're headed to the gym. And it's like a picture of them looking great, being like, got my drink, going to the gym, hashtag blessed. <laughs> now, I almost showed you guys this. I decided not to, but I'll, I'm going to do what I did in first service, which is just tell you it instead. I almost showed you my favorite blessed meme, which is a gentleman on rollerblades. And it says, whether I'm feeling hashtag stressed or hashtag blessed, I'm always looking my hashtag best. And I want it. I don't know why I keep not bringing it. I just, I can't not tell you guys. But this is like the trivialization of this word. Blessed to us just means like having a great day. Or you might, you might even use it in like weirdly pejorative ways. Like if, a, if you're like feeling bad for someone or you're actually, if you're mad at them or you think they're like doing poorly, you're talking about somebody's kid who's misbehaving, you go, oh, bless their little heart. You know what I mean? We use it in all these weird ways. And so here's the thing blessing, both in Greek and in Hebrew, because it's all over both Testaments. Blessing is this powerful concept, and it has at its center this idea of God's divine favor being upon you. And it also carries this nuance of, of happiness and well-being. I mean, happiness is so connected to this term that some translations you'll see every once in a while, they'll translate blessed as happy. 
Be like, happy are the people whose God is the Lord's. That's the way, one way of translating a famous psalm. So there's this idea of happiness and well-being, but it's specifically rooted in the fact that God is looking with favor upon you. So when you ask God to bless someone, that's what you're asking for. You're asking for God to look with favor upon that person. Or when Jesus pronounces that this type of person is blessed, what he's saying, hear this, is that God's favor and attention is upon them for good. And these are the people that Jesus is saying that about. People who are mourning and persecuted and poor in spirit. And that's absolutely bizarre. And if you're in the context that Jesus and original, his original hearers are in, like it's, it's even more bizarre than it sounds to us. See, we have, and we've said this here a lot, but it bears repeating, we have 2,000 years of Christian history, you know, mediated through things like this Sermon on the Mount that have taught us as modern Western people that we should care about like the weak and the marginalized and the humble and the ashamed and all these kind of categories. But that is an innovation when Jesus says this. I mean, Jesus is speaking to a people who are under Roman oppression and rule. And in the Roman world, you guys, nobody cares about the weak, period. This is something that we are so not familiar with that it's hard to even put your minds in this place. But it's, it's very clear in history that Romans, the Greeks before them, the Persians before them, the Babylonians before them, all the way back, the powerful rule. Who do you respect? Who do you care about? Who do you highlight? The strong, the ones who can protect you, the ones who can defeat your enemies. We care about strength, and the weak are there to be ruled by the strong. So there's no idea in Greco-Roman culture of like, oh man, the marginalized and the oppressed and the poor in spirit and those who are, who are meek and humble, we should really look out for them. That is just not an idea that even exists. And again, for us, that's a fairly intuitive thought because of Christianity, whether you're actually a Christian or not. Just by virtue of having grown up in a place influenced by the Christian worldview, we have that as an intuition now to care for the weak. They did not in the ancient world. So when Jesus says all these blessings about the poor and the weak and the meek and the persecuted, this is an absolutely radical message especially in its time. And for him to be speaking that message to his Jewish audience under the thumb of Rome is a radical, radical idea. He starts with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to go through all of them fairly quickly, but we have to start on this one and spend some time here because this actually provides kind of the interpretive framework that helps us understand the rest of the Beatitudes. Because there's actually, some of you might be aware of this, but there's some controversy surrounding this verse. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the controversy is because in Luke's gospel, Luke records a very similar sermon in which Jesus says something slightly different. Anybody know what Jesus says in the Luke version? Blessed are the poor. That's right, Scott, just the poor. Now, as a side note, because that can kind of freak people out, um, there, this is one of those things, we've, we've talked about this on Theology Live before, Isaac and I show on YouTube, where uh, how, like, there's slight differences between the Gospels, and people go like, well, wait, did Jesus say the poor in spirit, or did he say the poor? Which one is it? Jesus probably gave this sermon dozens of times during his ministry on earth. So Luke is recording an example where Jesus is giving a slightly different version of it in a different place, in a different setting. This is almost certainly what's happening. And Matthew is recording this particular version. And by the way, every preacher in the world does that. So of course Jesus did. He got, he's got his like magnum opus sermon. He's definitely given it in a few places. Like if this sermon goes well, I'll probably do it in Africa next year. 
So I think, Jesus, I think Jesus, you guys can tell me afterwards if I should or not. So don't worry about the kind of poor, poor in spirit in terms of kind of the historicity of the Gospels, but it's an interesting thing that Luke records Jesus saying, blessed are the poor. Matthew records him saying poor in spirit. Which one should we focus on? And if you understand what Jesus means by poor in spirit, it resolves that conflict entirely because the, the two ideas are connected. Now, there's a, a concept, a type of person that would have been incredibly familiar, would have been a fixture in the Jewish mind. For, so for Jesus and his followers and his listeners and for Matthew and his original readers, there's a category of person. In Hebrew, they were called the Anawim. And the Anawim, Anawim literally means bowed. So picture like, like the image that you're supposed to see with that word is somebody who's bent over, like under a heavy load. It means bowed. And it carries all these different nuances. It means poor, just like Luke said. It means materially poor, but much bigger than that. It means humiliated and oppressed and crushed by stronger forces than them. So the idea of the Anuim is, is a category of person who is under persecution, who is afflicted. That's another, word, another way it gets translated often, afflicted who is poor, who has no recourse, no way out of their situation, and the only thing they can do is trust in God. That's the idea of what the anawim means. Now, this is the New Testament, so it's written in Greek, so poor in spirit isn't translating that term, but in the Jewish mind, this is absolutely the image that would come to mind when Jesus says poor in spirit. It's all over the Old Testament. I'll give you a couple examples that kind of reveal what I'm talking about here and, and help bring it to life a little bit. This is from the prophet Amos. These are two different sections, but he's saying basically the same thing. Amos is, he's a prophet who's very concerned with justice and with the mistreatment of the poor and the oppressed. And in this section, and both of these sections rather, he's talking against those who oppress the weak and helpless. And part of how Hebrew poetry works, actually probably like the main device you can see in English, is they do parallel lines. So you'll see one line, and then the second line will say basically the same thing with slight variations, and the two lines work together to give you a fuller meaning. And this helps us understand how the word anawim works. Because in this example, from verse 7, chapter 2, he says, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the anawim. The second example, hear this, you who trample the needy and bring the anuim of the land to an end. You see how that works? Once it gets translated poor, just like Luke said, once it gets translated afflicted, and both of them are used in parallel with the terms poor and needy. So the idea of anuim includes all of this and more. And this poetry kind of sheds some light on that. that no, this is, this is talking about a type of person. Most famously, the words used here in Isaiah chapter 61 says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the Anuim. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And part of why this verse is so significant is that when Jesus in Luke's gospel kind of starts his ministry publicly. The way he does that is he goes into the synagogue and it's his turn to read from the scroll. And so he selects this passage from Isaiah to be what he reads. So you have to picture Jesus taking this passage, reading it in the synagogue, and then he says, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. So Jesus is identifying 
as his job description the bringing of good news to the Anawim. And then his choice of passage goes on to identify, again in parallels, that Anawim with those who are brokenhearted, those who are captives, those who mourn. Incredibly similar categories to what we see in the Beatitudes. Here's why all this matters. The temptation with the Beatitudes is to read those eight lines and see them as like eight different random characteristics that Jesus is choosing to identify his kingdom with. So he's like, let's see, we can do like poor in spirit, we can do people who mourn, we can do people who are meek. And that's missing the point. Jesus is drawing a circle around one type of person, the Anawim. And he says it here in the first verse, the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the rest of the Beatitudes are describing what that kind of person is like, what we see in those kinds of people, and the fact that God favors them, cares about them, and in fact puts his blessing upon them. So again, it's not eight random character traits that Jesus just likes. It's the the entire kind of conceptual framework for the whole passage starts here with the concept of the person who is beleaguered, who is afflicted, humiliated, beaten down, who has no recourse, nowhere to turn except to God. Jesus says those people are blessed. Let's look at the rest of them briefly. He says, blessed are those who, I never know if I should say blessed or blessed. What do you guys prefer? Blessed? It sounds so informal, right, Scott? Scott says blessed. I'm going with what he says. He got, the, he got the question right earlier, so he gets to pick. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This carries, and again, keep the anawim in your mind. This carries more than just the idea of personal mourning because something is going wrong in your life. That's certainly part of it, but it's beyond that. This is, this is the kind of groaning of the spirit when you see the world around you. We're going to see that repeated in one of the later ones as well. But this is the kind of attitude of the crushed who says, how long, O Lord, will it be like this? And then he says, blessed are the meek. And this is one that, that just hits me like a ton of bricks every time I read it. This is the Greek word praus. And what's interesting about this word is that Jesus, later on in Matthew's gospel, will use this exact same word to describe himself when he says he's gentle and lowly. You've got to ask yourself when you read this, are the meek people who we celebrate and honor in our culture, in our world today? How do we feel about meekness? I mean, there's a good chance that if you are somebody who's kind of just wired meek, like that's your personality type, there's a good chance you feel bad about that and wish it was different. You're not like me who wishes I could dial back the crazy a little little bit and, and meek myself up a little. But we cherish and honor and highlight and pay attention to like the boldest and brashest and loudest. How do you get views on a YouTube video? So-and-so destroys so-and-so. Like this is what we celebrate and highlight. And Jesus in the midst of that says it's, it's lowliness, meekness, humility. The very people that our world and his just run right over and ignore. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And again, this is incredibly interesting because we are so individualistic as people in our world that when we see the word righteousness, we instinctively think like personal righteousness. So people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we would intuitively think that means people who are desperate to be personally holy. 
And that's included in what that word means, but that Greek word is much, much bigger than that. The idea of righteousness is about rightness in the world. It's about justice. It's about things in the world being the way that they ought to be. So Jesus picks this image, which is so powerful, especially if you imagine a man who has spent 40 days fasting in his life. He knows what hunger and thirst feel like. And he says, blessed are those who have this desperation to see God right all that is wrong with the world. And if you understand the world and your place in it, then you know that includes me and my own unrighteousness, but it's much bigger than that. This is about a desperation to see God fix that which is broken in the world. And sort of take these next three together, the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. And again, sort of like the meekness thing, and this, this one even more so. This is a painful one, I think, for me and for our culture. How good are we in the kind of cultural moment we're in right now at mercy? How much mercy have you seen in the public world in the last 10 years? How many times have you seen somebody caught having done something horrible, maybe even a long time ago, and then when that person, when it's discovered and brought out, how often do you see everybody go, well, how do you feel about it now? Because maybe we can forgive you. Is that what we do? No, we have a word for what we do to those people. What do we do, everybody? You're all whispering it, but nobody whispers it on the internet. We cancel them. We made up a word for this in the last five years. And that is the absolute opposite of mercy. I mean, mercy is you've seen someone who doesn't deserve something, and you give them that second chance. You have mercy on somebody who doesn't deserve it, who you have the power to destroy and you choose not to. And it goes hand in hand with this idea of, of peacemakers. And this is something that I really want all of us to, to kind of search our hearts on because I have to be honest. And this is about me too, so I'm not throwing rocks at anybody else. But when I look at the world we live in and I look at the way that Christians in my life, including myself, are interacting in it, I do not see a lot of peacemaking happening. I want you to ask yourself, do I bring peace where I go or do I bring conflict where I go? Am I looking for opportunities to show mercy or am I looking for opportunities to find problems, to find things that can be pointed out that are wrong, that are bad, and that somebody needs to do something about? And this could manifest itself in a lot of different ways depending on your personality. Because many of us, we're like this on the internet and it is public. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm, you're, we're the opposite of peacemakers. We're on the internet and we're out looking for fights and looking for ways to get involved in conflict. Some of you guys are like, well, that's not me, I'm very quiet but you might find yourself gossiping about somebody behind their back, creating conflict, not having a merciful disposition towards the person you're talking about, and everything in between. Our world right now desperately, desperately needs peacemakers. Desperately needs people who are willing to show mercy when the rest of the world doesn't. You want Christians to stand out right now? Be peaceable, be merciful. Be ready to look with, with kind of like a generous spirit towards someone's words. Maybe give them the benefit of the doubt every once in a while. That sounds so small, but nobody does this. And Jesus says, who's blessed? The merciful, the pure in heart, those who make peace. 
That, that peacemaker's blessing is so powerful because he says they'll be called sons of God. It's like, you want a family resemblance with God, Christian? Be a peacemaker. Can you go to your friends, to your family, to the internet with a posture of how can I make this more peaceful? I mean, how radical is that? How sad is it that that's radical, by the way? But how, like, how radical is that? Can I bring peace and mercy into the social places that I interact with? And then finally, and this is the one that, that is the sledgehammer in the face to me of this passage. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The truth is, for most of us in the room, the idea of, of real persecution is an abstract idea. And I know, I, I know examples of people in this congregation for whom that's not the case. We have people in our congregation who have experienced real, serious persecution because they are Christians. So I'm not saying this is true of everyone, but for the vast majority of us in our lives, we don't actually experience real, heavy persecution. I'm not trying to trivialize the seriousness of like the social embarrassment and difficulty sometimes of being a Christian in your life and around your family maybe or in your workplace. I'm not saying that doesn't matter. But if you are an audience member of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you are a first century Jew who has seen friends, family members, or countrymen hung up on Roman crosses along the side of the road to warn everyone what happens when you try to stand up to Rome. When Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted, his audience knows what persecution means. They know what it looks like. They're like, that's my family, that's my friends. They live in fear of the Roman soldier that walks by throughout their day. They've seen someone they know killed by Rome. And the most painful part of this that, that we, those of us who don't live with that, we have to do the work of remembering this because it's not always in front of our faces. That is the everyday reality for millions of our brothers and sisters around the world right now. They're in fear for their lives because they trust Jesus. If their neighbor finds out they're a Christian, they might die tomorrow. That's real. It's happening right now. You got to ask yourself, when I look at my life and I look at their lives, which one seems blessed? Because man, at our gut, of course we're the ones who feel blessed. And Jesus says, nope. Blessed are the persecuted. And so that one just it, it like puts a button on a, a thing that's running throughout all of the Beatitudes, which is how on earth can you say this and have it be true? How can these be the people who are blessed? Like I feel like, man, my life's pretty comfortable. It's relatively easy. The stuff I'm worried about isn't like losing life and limb over my, my faith in Jesus. How can you say they're blessed? I'm the one who feels blessed. The beautiful thing is a huge part of the reason <laughs> why Jesus says they're blessed is hidden in plain sight right here in the passage itself. So look at this. Jesus, in the middle six Beatitudes, he's saying future tense promises. So why are the, those who mourn blessed? Because they shall be comforted. They're going to receive comfort in the future. The meek, because they shall inherit the earth. That's a terrible underline, forgive me. 
those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they shall be satisfied. Satisfaction is coming in the future. The merciful shall receive mercy. The pure in heart shall see God. The peacemakers shall be called sons of God. So there's a sense, and this is really significant and really powerful. Jesus is saying part of why these categories of people are blessed, part of why the Anawim are blessed, is because there is a future reality coming that is going to change the way everything you've experienced so far feels. There are promises that are coming in your future. That's why you're blessed. This is the beautiful thing, and this is so incredibly easy to miss, but it's so powerful. All of those future tense promises are bracketed by two present tense blessings. He starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he ends by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted, again, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's, that design is incredibly intentional. You have these bracketing present tense realities, and they're the same. Why are the poor in spirit and the persecuted blessed? Because they belong now in the kingdom of heaven. That's a reality for them in this moment. And then in between all of those is promise after promise of the comfort and the consolation and the mercy and the righteousness that's coming. And he writes, says, and I've always thought it's beautiful, he says that believers in all stages of history live between the is and the shall. I think that's just such a, a powerful way of framing that. that for the Anawim, for the poor in spirit, for the miserable and desperate and broken down, you live with this present sense of belonging to the kingdom of heaven, even now in the midst of your pain and misery. Because Jesus has come, and, and theologians call this the already not yet of the kingdom. That Jesus has come and, in a sense, inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth. So it's here, it's real now. And yet there's also a sense in which we're waiting for its final consummation when he returns. And in the meantime, you can be mournful and desperate and persecuted and you can still be blessed because there is a future promise coming that's going to change all of it forever. And man, that's, that's really, really, really hard to see for people like us. We could talk all day about the, the different ways that that kind of reframing of our value system that Jesus has just done, just in the Beatitudes. We're still in the intro of his sermon. But there's three things that I think we really need to focus on and reframe our way of thinking. The first one is the way we view those around us. We talked about this earlier, so I'll be brief, but when you see the people in your life, both the people you know personally and the people that you look up to out in the broader world, who is it that you are drawn towards? Who are you willing to spend your time and invest your life with? Who do you pay attention to and focus on? Is it the kind of people that Jesus just described in the Beatitudes? Chances are, probably not. I know for me it's not. That's not natural for me. We look to people who can serve us, who can benefit us in some way. And Jesus is turning the entire conception of who we value and who we care about upside down and saying, no, actually, the people who my kingdom is concerned with are the people you miss. So we as Christians have to take that to heart and say, in my daily life, who am I overlooking because I have the exact opposite set of values as what Jesus just opened the Sermon on the Mount with? And here's where it gets really painful. 
part of why we have a hard time with this. Again, I'm going to paint with a broad brush. It doesn't describe everyone in this room. There are many of us who are truly materially poor. We are actually the Anoim, but most of us, most of us just aren't. There's a really simple reason why the poor are blessed. Tim Keller is the first one who I heard point this out, and I thought it was so brilliant and so simple. Tim Keller says, part of the reason why the poor are blessed is simply that they know what it means to need help. I've been many places in the world, um, many of developing countries and, and the missions work of our church, and one thing that you see over and over again in the materially poor parts of the world are communities where people know how to lean on each other for help. They know what it means to have nothing and go to their neighbor or their, the, you know, the chief of their village or whoever it is that they can get help. They know how to go to someone with empty hands and say, I've got absolutely nothing, and if you don't help me, I am not going to make it. That's a daily reality for the materially poor. And some of you have experienced that. So first of all, if that's you, take comfort. Jesus says you're blessed. But for most of us, we spend our entire lives seeking autonomy, trying to build a life that requires no help from anyone ever. And there are good things that come from that, certainly, safety and security. But I'm convinced that your material comfort, my material wealth, it blinds us to our spiritual poverty. Because spiritually, every single human being is the Anawim. Desperate, afflicted, crushed by powers that are bigger than you, with nothing to contribute, no recourse, no way out. And all of us, rich, poor, and everything in between, have to come to Jesus empty-handed and say, I've got nothing to contribute. I don't have moral virtue. I don't have any help that I've given you or your kingdom. I'm empty, and I just need to be picked up. And if you don't come through for me, I'm not going to make it. And the poor, the materially poor, have an easier time doing that. So this is a, a sobering lesson for the Christians of the developed world. It's one that, that I've, I've been confronted with over and over and over again. I can tell you a time actually in my life that was one of the, the heaviest examples of this. Um, I was in Tanzania in East Africa. I wasn't planning on telling the story, but um, it applies. And we were, uh, Tammy Stone, who was up here a minute ago, she was with me actually. And we were in a village called Mkuyu. Tiny, tiny village. It was the first time I went there. Um, our group of people who went there was the second ever group of Westerners they'd ever seen. It's actually super funny. My wife was the first person of Asian descent that they had ever seen ever. And so one of the guys in the village kept looking at her, and I remember he goes, he goes, you are a different color, which I thought was awesome. It's <laughs> exactly how I said it to you. So we're there, and, and it's an incredible experience in many ways. But one day, they took us to pray for a boy who was dying. He was in a, the village prayer hut. He's about 15 years old. And all he had was appendicitis. And we prayed for him and reassured his family. And we left him, went home, and uh, we found out a couple weeks later that he died. Here's the kicker. Later that year, 
My little sister, who's 15, got appendicitis. And she got it bad, too. It burst, which doesn't even happen that often. It was horrible. But they did surgery, and, and you know, she's alive today. And it just came home to me the difference between living a life of relative ease, where again, I'm not, I'm not trivializing your problems and my problems. I know our lives are not easy, but man, just on a material comfort level, if you've got a place to sleep tonight and you know where you're getting clean water and food later today, you're doing really, really, really well. And I just remember thinking, man, the difference between my life and that father's life is that my sister is still alive and his son isn't. And there is something in that that makes it so, so hard for us to see how badly we need Jesus. Because we don't need very many other things. And so Christians and those who are coming to Jesus who are not yet Christians have to come to a deep awareness of your spiritual poverty have to learn to come to Jesus empty-handed and say, I've got nothing, got nothing. Help me. And the good news of the gospel is that when you do that, the Beatitudes become for you what they are always meant to be, blessings of beautiful, wondrous encouragement for you. That in your spiritual poverty, you are not neglected, you are not passed over, you are not missed, but you are in fact loved by a good and faithful king who is willing to give up his well-deserved riches in order to rescue you from your poverty. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And look at the, the beautiful math of that verse. The spiritually impoverished, every single human being, deserves nothing, has nothing. And Jesus, who has and deserves everything, every spiritual blessing imaginable, divests himself of all of it, comes down to the spiritual slums of earth as a human. And when the rightful king of heaven and earth, one of my daughter's books calls Jesus the king of everyone and everywhere, which I love, when the rightful king of everyone and everywhere comes to earth, he's not on like a golden chariot in front of a gleaming army, He's born as a helpless, crying baby in scandal, in poverty, under the oppression of the Roman Empire. That's how he lives his whole life. Doesn't have a place to lay his head. And he dies on a cross, tortured, humiliated, penniless, empty, because he spent everything to raise us up. And the beauty of the gospel is he passes through death, defeats it, raises from the dead and invites us to share in that resurrection with him. And there are dozens of images that the New Testament authors use to describe that, but this one is just so beautiful. Paul says he was rich and he gave it all away so that you and your poverty could be lifted into his palace of richness with him spiritually. So we're going to take communion together. And I actually need one if somebody could bring me one. I didn't bring one with me. <laughs> And I want to invite you to do something that we don't normally do. Thank you so much. I like how I whispered with a microphone on. That totally works. Thanks, Chris. 
I want to invite you to do something we don't always do here. Um, but like I said, I, and I really believe this, and it's true of me, and I imagine that it's true of most of you. Having an awareness of your spiritual poverty is, doesn't come easy, doesn't come natural to us. And so I want to offer everyone in here an opportunity. We're just going to take like a minute to reflect, to look inward. Consider your life. Consider who you truly are, your motivations, the life you live when it's under your own power. And I want you to try your best to come to grips with the fact that if it's not for Jesus, you've got nothing. So let's take a minute, close our eyes, and just recognize to yourself your spiritual poverty and emptiness. You can stand with me. The image that we, we enact visually and physically every week here at South Valley is of that great expense, that price that's paid by Jesus. Because you and I, who are poor, when we put our trust in Jesus, brothers and sisters, we're made rich. That's what Paul says. So that space that you might have just gone in the last 30 seconds, that's not the place that Christians have to live. Praise God. But it is good for us to remember, is it not? And so I want to invite you with me to consider the broken body of Jesus by which you who were spiritually impoverished have been made rich. We remember also the spilled blood of Jesus who died the death that we deserved and offers us eternal life in glory and goodness with him. And before we take this, I want to invite two types of people. You who are poor and desperate and miserable and feel like you're just at the bottom of the barrel. You go, you go man, when you describe the Anawim, that sounds like me. Know that Jesus calls you blessed. And those who trust in Jesus have the promise that yours is the kingdom of heaven today. And there are promises yet future to come that will make every misery and affliction pale in comparison. And for those of you who are like me, who look at your life and go like, man, you know what? Things feel pretty good in an earthly sense. Consider that even for you, you've been rescued by Jesus. You've been, had it revealed to you by the Spirit, your need for him, so that you could come to him. And he lifts up all of us alike into his richness. Amen? By his blood. Let's remember together. Father, I thank you for the gift of your son. You know me, Lord, and you know that it is difficult for me to recognize my spiritual poverty. You know that I am distracted by so many things. You know that, that man, so many things about my life are generally good. So, Lord, I pray that you would remind me of what you rescued me from. Remind us of those slums of spiritual brokenness and helplessness that every single person starts their life in and has no way out of. Let us all come to you like the Anawim, empty-handed and knowing that you look on us with love and mercy. 
and because of your great sacrifice, you lift us up. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.